It's that time of year again, my friends. It's winter time. For some, they love the cold. And for others like myself, I'm absolutely dreading the snow. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends, and welcome if you're new. Today, we're going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true winter horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I'd love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that truly help keep this show going on a daily basis. Now, without further ado, let's get into these creepy and allegedly true winter horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. So this happened last November or December. I can't exactly remember now because it was a long time ago. Now, I was visiting a childhood friend I grew up with, and we decided to go chill over at his friend's house, which was two houses down the row. We decided we wanted to go to the shop and get some snacks to eat while watching movies at his friend's house. Now, the shop is about a two-minute walk, so it's at the end of the road, really. So... As you come out of the front garden and yard area, you will see a long road to your left. For some reason, there were at least 10 people launching fireworks at someone's house. The reason as to why the house had fireworks shot at it was because they were deemed snitches, apparently. To your right, there is a way to the shop. Just bear in mind, it is a rough neighborhood, so calling the police for help is like asking for unwanted attention. We reached the shop and got some chocolates, crisps, sandwiches, and your average Insomniac's favorite drink, a Monster Energy. As we made our way back to the house to watch movies, it had gotten a bit darker. Over here in the Northwest, it gets dark pretty quick in the winter season. We noticed that more people had gathered up in the darkness, taking advantage of the neighborhood being underlit and the neighbors being afraid of them. They were still shooting fireworks at the house, but we noticed some of them were staring at us so we rushed ourselves across the road and back to the house. Everything was seemingly fine for a few hours. You could still hear the fireworks going off and the gang of teenagers laughing and shouting. This was all happening while we were watching Terminator Dark Fate, and after we watched the movie, we had decided to finish off the night with a few games of Among Us on our phones. We called it a night after that and got ready to make my way home. When the time came for me having to go home, the streets were rather foggy and stunk of gunpowder from all the fireworks they were launching earlier. My friend rushed back inside. His home was on the opposite end of the street to the gang. Bear in mind, some of these lads are like 15 and probably all mixed ages from there. Some of these people are just kids carrying blades. As I was walking up near my friend's house with my back to the gang, I had not realized that the gang had started making their way up the road in my direction. So, this may sound a little confusing, but in the UK, outside some houses, we have this kind of waterproof metal breaker box. These are a part of the neighborhood grid, and most people sit on them like benches. There's one outside the fence of my friend's front garden, and there were four or five girls sat on it, all staring in my direction. Me not being much of a social person just kind of glared at them out of confusion, and they started running away. At first, I thought I scared them or something, because I'm six foot four with a big coat and a green military bag on. Sadly, it wasn't me that scared them, because a few moments later, a firework comes flying up the road and explodes on the ground not far from the girls. 
they ran towards the shop, and I turned and looked behind me, utterly crapping myself to see one of the many gang members stood in the middle of the road in his thick coat with winter fur around it. When using a bottle rocket firework, you can hold it in your hand and aim it toward a target. These lads were laughing, and then he points the stick in my direction, and one flew past my head. I ran into my friend's garden, and one of the shots landed on the ground near the garden. The following shot landed next to me, and it was about to explode, so I kind of had to launch myself across the garden to get away from it before the flames caught me and set me ablaze. Once the shooter ran out of shots, he slowly backed down the road and ran away. In a blind adrenaline rage, I started screaming angry profanities over what had just happened. My friend's mother asked who was shouting, and I said it was me and I explained that those idiots are launching fireworks at me. About that time, the gang slowly started making their way up the road again. My friend's neighbor had luckily given me a lift home, and my friend called me and said that they had all come up to the end of the street looking for, presumably, me. Luckily, I wasn't there anymore, because I think they were going to hurt me. I got away relatively unscathed, because most people end up in the hospital. Once I was working at a hospital in Arkansas during the swing shift, it was about an hour drive from my home in Oklahoma Hills. I had a slick, step-side pickup truck, and my family needed to borrow it for some time to move some stuff. They didn't get back with my pickup when I got off. Instead, they left a Mercury Monterey car. It was basically a friggin' ugly boat to drive home. It was huge. I wasn't happy, but I had to get home somehow. It had a monster motor in it, and it would go fast. But still, I hated it, and I cussed and grumbled. About 20 miles down the road, rocking about 75 to 80 miles per hour, my hair got jerked. Not a little, but like a real tug. So I whipped off the road, and fisted my gun, and jumped to search the back seat immediately, expecting to catch someone hiding there. There was no one. I cursed the car, and the owner, and everyone I was angry with at the moment, and floored it away. I got another 20 miles over a curve too, and then the lights suddenly go off. Holy crap. I pulled off the road and they came back on. So I cussed at the stupid car and took off again, thinking this might be some electrical problem. Then, my hair got violently yanked, pulling my head back until I couldn't even see the road anymore. I pulled over and stopped, checked the back seat, the headrest, everything. This ramped up my temper even more. I was on this isolated stretch of road. There were no cell phones back then. I had to get home. It's midnight, and I was not happy. I take off again, and the heater went off. Then the lights started flashing off and on. Every so often, I had to pull off the road again, and then every time I would pull off the road, they would come back on, and everything would be normal. I am not mechanically inclined, so I am thinking it's a short somewhere, maybe the alternator. I told the car it was a defective piece of metal, and was determined to get home. Then... It felt like something was kicking the back of my seat. Not a subtle nudge, but like a full-on-force kick. Then my bag went flying out from the passenger seat onto the floorboard. The radio went on, changing channels and going haywire. The lights went on and off. The seat tried to literally buck me like a bull. It started blowing freezing cold air. I made a quick turn off onto a dirt road and stopped at the first creek I came to. I pulled off the road and into the embankment. I got my bag and my angry butt left. It was winter, it was cold, and it was late, but 
but I was not going to spend another moment in that car. The next day, they brought my truck home and wanted the car. I told them where to find the car and where they could put it. I don't know about any haunted cars or anything else paranormal, but this is a true story from 1976. I did tell one lie, though. The car didn't commit suicide. I pushed it into the creek with the tractor and set it on fire. Hello everyone, this is a story of my mom and how she died. This may differ as it was only scary to me because I didn't really know what happened. If you're a parent listening to this and have had any suicidal thoughts, please seek professional help because my mom's death has messed me up for the rest of my life. Anyways, on to the story. For some context, my mom had been dealing with drug addiction for well over a decade at this point. Her and my dad had me in 2004 but shortly divorced after about two years. So, it was just us and the occasional boyfriend. I tended to wander off and explore the neighborhood when she passed out drunk or whatever else, which ended up getting me grounded very often. Eventually, it got so bad that she eventually gave my grandma, her mom, joint custody of me. I was six years old at the time. It was January 7th, 2012, that things really took a turn for the worst. I had gone to visit her for the weekend. We were late because my grandma was finishing up work. The first red flag that something bad had happened was that her boyfriend answered the door. She was always the person to answer the door. He told us that she was napping and would be up soon. It was 3pm. 5pm rolled around and I ended up making the biggest mistake of my life. I went into her room. And there, I saw her body. The gun was on her chest. I stupidly didn't question it because I didn't know what death was. I left the room and continued waiting in the living room. 6.45 rolled around and her boyfriend checked on her. The next thing I saw was him bolting out of the room and bolting outside. The police showed up 15 minutes later, and so did my family. I was heavily questioned by the detective about how I saw her. I was taken out of the house and to my family who were crying. I was told that she was dead. It set in that something bad happened not long after, and I ended up going into shock. I started living with my grandma full time at that point. I saw therapy and just kind of accepted that she was dead. To tell a 7 year old that they would never see their mom again is probably the hardest thing you could do. So please if you have kids and are struggling mentally, think of how it could affect them. Because I'm now a stoner and can't have a stable romantic relationship because my mental state was destroyed so badly from this. You are not alone. There will always be people who will listen to you. And to anybody in the swamp who needs any help please feel free to reach out or even check out some of the sponsors on this channel at Talkspace.com. You can use code SWAMPED to save $100 off your first month. In the mid-80s, I was a college student in the Mountain West. I was not a recreation major, but nevertheless, I made a point of scheduling an outdoor education class every other semester or so. The classes were a great diversion and usually resulted in an easy A to pad the grade point average. Consequently, over the course of my college years, I had squeezed in recreation credits for kayaking, windsurfing, scuba diving, and primitive archery. I thoroughly enjoyed all of those classes, and I honestly believe they had made me a better student overall. It was always refreshing to step out of the academic grind for a few hours. For one winter semester, I enrolled in a wilderness survival course. 
The class met once per week during the term and then culminated in a practical final exam. The final was basically a three-day outing in which the students used the course material while camping and hiking through a section of, of southeast Utah. The class was about 60 students, along with about a dozen or so staff, so we took two buses to the drop-off area. The site was about an hour or so from the campus, far out in the desert amid the junipers, sagebrush, and creosote bushes. It looked like a rangeland to me and there was ample evidence of stock trails and cow pies and all kinds of things. To be honest, I can't recall our location exactly. I think we were around Bryce Canyon National Park, but I know for a fact that we were outside park boundaries because our coursework involved a lot of activities that are forbidden on protected lands, such as harvesting plants, digging in the earth, and building shelters and burning fire pits. It was winter, but we were far enough south that the daytime temperatures were mild, even pleasant. The skies were clear, and we were predicted to stay that way. The only real weather concern would be the high desert nights when temperatures were certain to drop well below freezing. As we deboarded the buses, the director rallied everyone into a big group and gave us our final field instructions. He made a big deal about the experience being a realistic survival experience. To that end, we would have limited food, limited water, and limited equipment. Our success in the venture and our course grade would depend on how well we utilized our classroom training in meeting our survival needs. Every student had been told to bring the following. A pocket knife, a rolled wool blanket, six feet of cord, a coat, a hat, underwear, one shirt, one pair of pants, and one pair of socks. It wasn't so much a specific survival situation or simulation as it was just an exercise in making the most of minimal gear which one might face whenever they are in an unknown emergency. Following our short meeting, the director and the staff did a contraband search, going so far as to search everyone's bedroll and even their pants pockets. This all seemed a bit ridiculous and a bit insulting to me. Why would anyone, or any adult I should say, sign up for a wilderness survival experience only to sabotage their own education by sneaking in matches or snacks. Yet, they did. I had to laugh at the number of cigarette lighters that were uncovered. There was also a smattering of gloves and extra socks. There were plenty of illicit snacks. One guy even attempted to smuggle a jumbo size of potato chips. It made an embarrassing crunch when a staffer squeezed his bedroll. After all these years, the memory of the contraband search still astonishes me. We started the trip with a two-hour hike into the desert. I suppose we were probably about 15 miles away from any paved road. Apart from the noises of the group, the only sound was the wind and the occasional bird call. It was arid and scrubby, but still very peaceful and beautiful. The plants were mostly dormant in the winter, but there was plenty of life in the desert still. Our first camp was in a broad, shallow valley, down among a grove of cedars. It had been used before and was obviously a bit of a sacrifice area. Several of the trees were missing strips of outer bark, and much of the deadfall firewood had already been gathered up from the forest floor. Still, it looked at least as good as any campsite you might see in Yellowstone or Yosemite. A dirt road had allowed the staff to drive a four-wheel drive support vehicle right into the camp. Our first task was to execute a shelter and bed for the night. In addition, we were required to produce two feet of natural fire cordage and start one fire for every team of four people. 
The results were widely mixed. Some teams completed their tasks quickly, while others struggled and even failed. More than one group was unable to get a fire going and had to ultimately rely on staff help. One team set their camp in the bottom of a clear path of a past flash flood. Several individuals were unable to make usable cordage despite having practiced that skill in one of the prior classroom sessions. The staff were kept busy by checking off tasks and providing any advice and help as needed. Not to brag, but wilderness survival was nothing new to me. I'd always been an outdoors kid and had probably logged around 400 days of traveling outdoors as a kid and probably throughout my life. Due to an odd number of students in the group, I was paired with just one other student, who was also very capable in the course material. We just coasted through the afternoon and enjoyed the equivalent of a nice campout. We found a great natural shelter and found friction fire burning within minutes. We also made about 30 feet of excellent cordage of two different kinds. There was no dinner that night and water was rationed in coffee cans for each group. I'm sure the poor guy was missing his potato chips by then. My partner and I were punished for our competence by being tasked with tending the safety fire, basically. So, this meant that we were going to be maintaining a fire throughout the night for the entire group, which could have been used to warm up any freezing campers if they got cold in the night. It was a lot of extra work gathering wood, and it would also mean that we would have to wake up several times throughout the night to tend the coals. Oh well, it was good practice, and it was kind of flattering to be trusted with a staff job. The night was bitter cold and the wind rose to about 20 miles an hour. Without a flashlight, it was impossible to see any of the surrounding campers. We felt obligated to keep at least a small open flame so anyone in distress could find the safety in the dark. Fortunately, the cow dung made durable coals, and we also managed to find a large stump which burned for several hours. In the early morning, we could see the other students huddling together in their thin blankets. Most of them had figured out the benefit of the shared body heat technique. Who knows? Maybe a few lasting romances were formed that night. Staff gathered by the safety fire with several large bird cages. They demonstrated how to field dress a chicken without using a knife, and then each group of four got a large, live bird. The rationale was that a chicken is much like many of the ground birds that would be found in nature. Turkey, grouse, sage hen, pheasant, etc. It wasn't long before everyone had a pot of boiling bird. Hunger made most of the campers less than squeamish about dispatching a live creature. And to be honest, it was all handled respectively and relatively humanely. Not a drop of broth was wasted, and every liver, gizzard, heart, and even unlaid egg was eaten. After eating, we had another day of hiking. The hike was interspersed with brief testing sessions in which students were tested on direction finding, water purification, natural containers, etc., we had some great presentations by the staff, too. I used several of the breaks to work on some cedar bark sandals I was making. Camp was in a similar site that night, the difference being the presence of a windmill and a stock watering bank. We had been dry most of the day, but the mossy water was very welcome. Smarter campers braved the cold and took a spit bath to wash away the dirt and sweat from the long day. That night, the entire group shared an entire sheep carcass, the staff provided stone blades for several of the students to cut the tendons and meat. Along with coal-roasted potatoes, everyone ate well again that night. We were tasked with par-fletching a portion of meat to carry for the day. We did this by roasting the meat and then wrapping it in bark. We slept better that night, 
but my partner and I still had to wake several times to tend to the safety fire. It seemed easier the second time. In the morning, smarter campers ate a few roasted potatoes which they had hoarded from the previous night. We all hydrated at the stock tanks and then hit the trail for the final hike. On this day, we encountered the massive sandstone canyons of the federal lands. We climbed a steep canyon wall and walked through miles of sweeping waves of withered rocks. The lower gullies were scattered with maquis marbles, strangely, little perfect spheres of iron oxide, which formed deep in the sedimentary layers. They are sometimes called shaman stones. At midday, we stopped at a point where water ran through a clear stream. We all drank, then gathered for the last meeting. The director informed us that the last leg of the hike was a five-mile run. He described that the path was unmistakable, an unforked dirt road that would take us to the pickup site. The director made it clear that running was not mandatory, but did say that anyone taking much longer than an hour would see it reflected in their grade. And, as with any group of young adults, feats of comparative toughness always fuel competition. I knew I wasn't the fastest, but I also knew I would certainly make that time limit. I decided to cover the distance in my now-completed cedar sandals. They were scratchy and rough, and the dog's bane halters were narrow and abrasive, but if I wore them with my socks, they were comfortable. It was a great feeling of accomplishment to cover that five miles with my homemade footwear. Here's where the story truly gets weird and downright creepy. Upon arriving at the pickup site, we found we were a few hours ahead of the buses. We had two hours to kill. The weather was cool and fine, and the sun was nice and bright. Several of the guys settled in for naps. A few others hiked up the road to see the view. I crossed a rickety footbridge and walked along a stream bed. I noticed a small section of rusty pipes welded on the top of another pipe. They stuck out of the ground, just a few feet off the rough little trail. The pipe was welded at an odd angle and kind of looked like a telescope pointed to the sky. On a whim, I ducked down and peeped my eye through the pipe. I almost missed it. Indeed, the pipe was a sighting device aimed at a nearby canyon wall. Even with the pipe, I could barely notice the ancient stone granary perched under the overhang about 60 feet up the rock wall. The perfectly matched stones were mortared into a large hollow cylinder which served as a grain storage for the indigenous inhabitants hundreds of years earlier. Briefly, it was invisible. I would have walked by it a thousand times and never seen it. The ancient wonder of the Puebloan engineering was a perfect fit for its surroundings. I had known that Native Americans had stored grains and seeds and stuff in this manner, but I had never seen it in person. I later read that some granaries were so dry and protected that they still held seeds and grains hundreds of years later. I was impressed and humbled by this example of native construction. I wandered around and found a quiet place by the stream bed. I found a perfect little patch of duff and laid down to relax and soak up the sun. I knew I would hear the buses when they arrived, so I could relax about that. I was well tired from the three-day adventure. I had just trotted five miles in homemade sandals. I was full of mutton potato, and a hostess fruit pie, which they had given us at the trail's end. I was feeling as good as I had ever felt. That's when time slipped. In an instant, I saw a perfect image of the little stream valley. It was no longer choked with willows and alder, but was perfectly level with groomed soil. 
I could see row after row of bright green corn stalks with ears of corn. It struck me that they were mature, with fruit, but only about five feet tall, much shorter than the modern corn. I could see the water from the creek flowing in an amazing little feeder ditch, distributing water to every row of corn. The valley was level with deep soil. It became clear to me in an instant that it was flooded plain left by an ancient beaver dam, filled with silt and leveled by centuries of standing water, and century of successive beaver dams. Down the little valley, I saw more patties beyond, most with corn, but others with vines of some sort, all with feeder ditches, most of them empty. All the ditches had been worked by a skilled irrigator, some ancient farmer who evidently loved that little piece of land. I can't explain how clear it was. I can't explain how it didn't require me to think or imagine. It was just instantly clear. I wondered if I was drowsing, but I wasn't. I was wide awake. I could hear other students horsing around up by the main road. I could see the sun and feel the breeze. While it was happening, I could move my head to look around. As it was happening, I already had the impression that it was temporary and ephemeral. I, I tried to hang on to it, but it changed back as quickly as it had come about. I tried to estimate how long it lasted, and it seemed like maybe 15 seconds. When it was over, I left with a strange mix of satisfaction and longing. It was miraculous and amazing to witness, but I wanted to look longer. I was left feeling deeply touched and humbled, but at the same time, absolutely terrified. Since that day so many years ago, I have often wondered if it was just a dream, or if I had fallen into some sort of time slip or what, but I remain confident that it wasn't some sort of dream. Sure, I was tired, maybe I was a bit sleep deprived or undernourished, but it almost seems more plausible that it was effaced in my own ego. I was proudly calm and at peace and my mind was extraordinarily open. I somehow got beyond my present dimension. To the best of my knowledge, I had never read or heard of anything about Pueblan culture. I am confident that I was not processing some previous memory. In fact, I think it's safe to say that I had a general disinterest and disrespect for indigenous culture at the time. I was a product of the 60s and 70s after all. Since then, I have made a point to find out more of the early Americans. I have always gratified that my impressions of that day seem to mesh perfectly with the genuine anthropological data. At this point, I accept that I might never understand this experience, but I'm glad I experienced it. That moment remains an indescribable treasure to me. The reason why I say it made me feel a bit terrified though, is because if this was a time slip or some sort of dimension, why was I able to see it and nobody else was? And what would have happened if I actually wandered into it per se? I used to work at my ex-father-in-law's office, which was a large, two-story historical building, a little over a hundred years old. I worked there off and on for about 15 years. During that time, my co-workers and I witnessed numerous strange events that baffle me to this day, ranging from benign footsteps to items being flung around. Often, I would take a lunch break, so I would stay at the office while the others left first. One day, I heard the microwave door open in the kitchen, which was adjacent to the waiting room. This was a newer stainless steel microwave with a handle, so you must pull it to open it. I got up and shut it and sat back down at my desk. About ten minutes later, the microwave door opened again. 
I got up, closed it, and sat back down. This happened at least three different times within the lunch hour. I didn't feel afraid, and honestly, I didn't really think much about it. My strangest encounter was the day my ex-sister-in-law with her two kids were visiting. I was talking to them in the waiting room, and they were all sitting in chairs. Like I said, the waiting room sits right next to the opened kitchen door. Suddenly, the kitchen light came on at the exact same time, and two paintings in the waiting room fell to the ground. We were all stunned, but not necessarily afraid. We also had this very old-school time-stamp machine that was about as heavy as a brick used to build houses and such. It was slightly smaller in dimensions, although a little squarer. My co-workers and I lost count of this thing more times than I can count. Even though it was always hanging from a wall or something near an outlet, it would always be missing and sometimes even be thrown to the ground by itself. We would often hear a crash and there it would be, on the floor. At one point, the timestamp machine was in my co-worker's office, sitting behind her on a table, and it would fall into the ground while she was sitting on her desk. She finally moved it to the kitchen area, and it would continue crashing to the ground periodically when no one was occupying the room. Sometimes, when we arrived to work that morning, it would just be on the floor, even though we left it in a drawer the day before. It was very weird, but we always just kind of joked that our resident ghost was just up to its tricks. The only time I felt truly unsettled was when I was hanging out in my ex-father-in-law's office after hours, trying to fix his computer. It was winter, so it was dark outside, and I was the only person in the office, so it was very quiet. I could hear footsteps upstairs and the doors opening and shutting in a regular fashion. No slamming or anything like that. At one point, it sounded like a box was being dragged around, and that was when I decided to go check on the woman upstairs to see if I could find the source. I checked all the rooms, and there wasn't a soul there. No one had apparently been here yet. We often had footsteps and doors shutting, but this time it freaked me out so much that I refused to stay there alone after when it was dark. My ex-husband didn't really experience anything strange and usually just brushed it off as our stories and us kind of going crazy, I guess. I guess his thought was that it was all in our heads. He finally became a believer one evening when he was working in his office after hours. There was a very large mirror that sat on the mantle of an old fireplace in his office. He said while he was sitting in his desk, which faced the fireplace and mantle, the mirror came crashing down to the floor and shattered, making a big mess. I saw the mirror the next day and it was completely busted. A few years after my divorce, my ex-husband passed away from an acute illness at the age of 38. About a year after his death, I visited the office to catch up with my old co-workers and ex-brother-in-law, who was still there. I asked the old co-workers if the ghost was still up to his tricks. They laughed and said, of course. It's just so strange, and to this day I cannot explain it. I have never really believed in spirits. I'm not completely ruling them out, though. And since I think there could be something beyond our understanding, I'm open-minded to what it would have been. Maybe somebody in the comments can help me understand better. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true winter horror stories. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please do me a big favor and hit that like button. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it in the algorithm, and that's incredibly helpful to the swamp. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new upload.
as I upload new episodes almost every single day, and all things natural and supernatural. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or another podcast platform, please be sure to give this episode a 5-star rating, as that helps us out a ton over there. If you're on the go and don't have YouTube Premium, but still would like to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, you can download them absolutely free from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and just about anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you would like to support the Swamp outside of hitting that like button, subscribing, and giving us a 5-star rating on Apple Podcasts, maybe check out the merch store. I've got t-shirts, hoodies, face masks, and more. I'd love to see you guys wearing some cool Swamp threads. I'd love to know in the comments down below what story was your favorite tonight. Honestly, it's always so hard to pick one, but I think that survivalist story might do it for me. Time slip stories are incredibly interesting. Be sure to join me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and I'll see you guys soon with another creepy video.